we are in a series of lessons called Move. And, and it came as a result of last year as we were thinking about how do we get out of 2020 into something that hopefully is a better spot. And of course, we're still struggling to get there. Uh, COVID has made a resurgence. Uh, I talked with a nurse yesterday uh, who said that the hospitals are filling back up again. There's this Delta variant that's going around. And so I want to urge all of us to be cautious, be careful. Uh, but we were trying to talk about how do we move from what we've been through the last 18 months to a better spot. And we began with David. We've moved to Jesus. And what we've been doing is looking at lives of where Jesus encountered people who are going through some difficulties in their life. And today we come to someone who, I mean, you want to talk about being in a spot that is just absolutely horrible. And, and I'm sure wondering, where in the world do I go from here? Our text today is about that particular person. I hope you have your Bibles. Do you have your Bibles? Would you hold them up? Do you have your Bibles this morning? I know not everyone carries Bibles, but I want to urge you, bring your Bible, bring a pen, highlighter. Uh, if you want to, you know, maybe journal. We still have uh, our move journals that are available where you can take notes. I know a lot of people take notes. June is one of the best note takers. There is. Uh, I oftentimes will say to her, can I go back and see what I preached on last week? And she's like, yeah, right here it is. You know, she helps me out a lot. And so, uh, please, take notes, underline, highlight. It's so important for us to do this. We're in John chapter 8. And John uh, chapter 8 is a story about a person who is caught in probably the most embarrassing situation you could be caught in. And how Jesus intervenes in order to hopefully not only save her life, but to move her down a different pathway in her life. Now, if you have your Bibles and you've already turned over to John 8, one of the things you'll notice right off the bat is that a lot of our Bibles have some phrases in there, warnings in there that tell us that there's something different about this story as far as the textual evidence is concerned. Uh, Brother Rodney Cloud here is a teacher of Hebrew, long time at Lipscomb University, and, and he's an expert in, in, I'm sure, Hebrew textual criticism as well as New Testament textual criticism. And, and those who have studied ancient manuscripts knows that sometimes there are things that get into our Bible that we're like, you know what, that may not belong here or that may belong somewhere else and it's just been added to this particular text. And so Tom, sometimes there are textual questions that are raised. This is one of them. And if you'll notice what the NIV says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 through 8.11. In other words, this story of this woman caught in adultery, and if you get old ancient manuscripts, the story is not there. Now, there are a handful of manuscripts that, well, it's there, but it's not in this spot. And then there are other manuscripts that have it, and it's over in the Gospel of Luke. And so, if you study textual criticism, you have to step back and ask yourself, okay, what's going on here? And I've heard all kinds of explanations of how it got into uh, John's Gospel. Some people think it should be over in Luke's Gospel. I personally think it probably was written by Luke. That's my own personal opinion about it. And so you may ask the question, okay, if Luke wrote it, how did it get in John's Gospel? And the answer would simply be that someone at some point in time said, you know what, this story told by Luke is so powerful, it helps understand what John was trying to do in his Gospel. Now, can I prove that? No. 
It's just an opinion of mine. But we need to acknowledge that there are some issues with the textual uh, evidence here. Now, but let's go on in the text because the story, I believe, is a story about Jesus. I believe it is inspired. And whether Luke wrote it, John wrote it, or some other inspired New Testament writer wrote it, I think it's one that we need to pay very careful attention to. Begins this way. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts. Now, if you go back just one chapter, it's in the fall. It's the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is in late September, early October. We'll be there before we blink our eyes. And so Jesus is down for the feast. And so he's been teaching. He's already had some confrontation. And now it's the next morning. He's at the temple where all the people have gathered around him. And he sat down to teach. And notice the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Have you been to the beach this year? I mean, do you like going to the... June and I, we love to go to the beach. We love to go to the mountains. But if you go to the beach, one of the things that you'll notice if you like getting into the water is that you've got to pay attention to the flags. I mean, sometimes the flags are green. You know it's okay to go in. Sometimes they're yellow and you're like, uh. And then sometimes there's red flags. And, and if Jesus had been going to the beach back then when this story happened, he would have seen red flags all over the place. You know, something is going on that doesn't make sense as he's teaching here in the temple. Notice, first of all, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Right off the bat, right off the bat, you've got to ask a simple question. Where's the man? I mean, if they caught, you, you know, you can't commit adultery by yourself. Not possible. And so if they caught someone in the act of adultery, there's two people involved in that. And so the first question you ask yourself is, where's the guy? And, of course, that causes you to step back and go, okay, was it a setup? I mean, was this woman set up? Was, was there something going on behind the scenes? And, of course, the more you read it in the text, the more you think there had to be something going on. But right off the fat bat, the first uh, red flag is, where's the man? And then look at the next thing. They made her stand before the group. I can't imagine anything more humiliating than what these religious leaders did to this woman. Didn't do it to the man. Did it to the woman. I mean, they are using her as an object to go after Jesus. And they're treating her not as a human being, but as an object. And to force her to stand, and, and I don't know what she was wearing at this moment, I don't know what she looked at at this moment, but I do know what must have been going through her mind, and that is, how in the world did I get into this predicament? I want to ask you a question. When you look at others, do you see people created in the image of God, or fill in the blank up there? I mean, one of the things that Jesus is constantly forcing us to do is ask ourselves, how do we see other people? I mean, can I speak to those of us who are guys? I mean, can I ask you a real simple question? When you see women, do you see objects or do you see human beings created in the image of God? And ladies, I apologize. I apologize for how many times you've been looked at and, and, and what the person was doing was not looking at a person but was treating you as if you were an object of desire that, you know, they could somehow possess. And I'm sorry that the fall created that in us. 
I mean, when you look at other people, do you see the color of their skin? Is that the first thing you focus on? Do you see the clothes that they're wearing? I mean, do you notice the car that they're getting out of or the house that they live in? I mean, just fill in the blanks. How do you judge other people? Jesus would say to us, there's a better way to see people. And it's through the eyes of God, the way he sees them. And so they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. She's caught in it. And there's no reason to believe that it was otherwise. Okay? She was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to sow such women. Now, what about you? What do you say? And again, those red flags are going off all over the place. Now, did the Old Testament teach that? It did. But look at the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. If a... Notice who's focused on here. If a man... If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress, now, is the woman to be punished as well? Yes. I mean, this is a terrible, serious crime in God's eyes. God wants marriage protected. And the violation of the marriage covenant is is a violation of an incredible promise made before God. But notice that in the book of Leviticus, if a man commits adultery, And here they are, the great defenders of the Torah, and the man's absent. Woman's there. And it's interesting that you're you're going to punish someone where the law says both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Except he's amazingly absent in the story. Then notice this part. What do you say? Jesus, what do you say? And of course, I mean, the first thing I want to ask is, why are you bringing her to Jesus? Jesus is not a a lawyer. He's not the court. Jesus is not the one who you enforce the, the religious laws in front of. I mean, can you imagine me on one, uh, uh, one Monday morning, I'm here at the church building, and we've got some wonderful officers from the Hendersonville Police Department who provide us security, who helps with our traffic flow here on Sundays. But can you imagine a Monday morning, I'm here at the church building, and all at once a couple of police cars pull up, and they said, Hey, Les, we've caught this person breaking into someone's house over here, and we just want to know, what do you think we ought to do with him? And, of course, my first question would be, Why are you asking me? You know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a judge. I mean, you, you need to take that to the, you know, appropriate authorities. And, of course, right off the bat, you know something wrong is going on in this story. Why bring her to Jesus? And, of course, the answer may be because they already have a lot of problems with Jesus when it came to women. You know, that's one thing that I love so much about the chosen the chosen, while there is not a perfect dramatization of life of Jesus, the only perfect dramatization of life of Jesus is right here, okay? You need to understand that. But in the chosen, there's an attempt to say, what was it like for, you know, disciples to follow Jesus? And one of the things that had never dawned on me until I watched the chosen is just how prominent in Scripture Mary Magdalene is. I mean, you turn over to Luke chapter 8. Early in Luke's gospel, he says, listen, the twelve were with him. But then he says something that is absolutely outside the norm of that time period. And also some women. 
You see, rabbis did not have women students in the first century. That was not the way women lived or or the way they were educated in the first century. And so for Jesus not only to have 12 apostles, but to have several women following him was outside the norm. And you see that depicted in The Chosen in one of the episodes. And of course among them is Mary Magdalene, Joanna, uh, Susanna, and others, Luke says. And so there was no doubt that a lot of whispering was going on in Jerusalem. Here's a rabbi who not only has male students, but he's got female students. Why is he, you know, violating our customs in doing that? And you've got to wonder if that's not back behind the scenes. But then the inspired writer, whether it was John, Luke, or someone else, he just tells us point blank what's going on. He says they were using this question as a trap as a trap to find some reason to accuse not the woman but Jesus and boy when you see that you're like are you kidding me and yet Jesus was constantly dealing with this you turn over to Matthew chapter 22 which by the way is right before Matthew 23 where he unloads on the Pharisees But in Matthew 22, during the week he's there, that last week, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. You ever thought about that backstory? I mean, speaking of the chosen, have you ever imagined what it was like to be in Jerusalem, be up in the temple courts, have a room set aside, in files in all of these Pharisees, they sit down and they go, okay, how are we going to catch him? I mean, y'all know how sharp he is. I mean, he he really laid waste to the Sadducees when they thought they had him. I mean, what can we ask him that's going to trap him so that we're going to be able to finally get rid of this quote-unquote rabbi Messiah as quickly as possible? I mean, who came up with the questions? And then how did they just word them so that they were just perfect, so that there was no way Jesus could get away? And so Jesus was used to this. And we find it happening multiple times. But I love what Jesus did next. He just bent over and started writing on the ground with his finger. He didn't answer them. He didn't reply to them at all. And of course, what a lot of commentators spend a lot of time doing is trying to figure out what he wrote. And I mean, if you go and just get any of the commentaries, just go on Google and Google, what did Jesus write during the story of the adulterous woman? And you'll find article after article after article. Well, maybe he wrote this or maybe he wrote that. Maybe he wrote down one of the Ten Commandments. You know, for instance, you should not bear false witness as opposed to you should not commit adultery. Perhaps he wrote down guilty. Perhaps he wrote down innocent. Perhaps he wrote down you fill in the blanks. And I love what one commentator said when he said, y'all, we don't know what he wrote, so let's not speculate. And, and I enjoy speculating, but honestly, we don't know what he wrote. And it may be that he really wasn't doing anything except piddling in the, in the dirt just to burn time up. You see, the best way to irritate some people is simply not to acknowledge their question. And you see this in the text. I mean, they kept on questioning. You know, you're going to give us an answer. I'm reminded of my grandson, Luke. Uh, June and I have got three grandsons, and uh, one of our grandsons lives in Columbia. His name's Luke. He's four years old. Anybody want to guess his favorite word? His favorite word is why. Why? 
we were in the backyard last week or week before last, and, and, and I've got a wheelbarrow back there, and the wheelbarrow's old. It's got one side of it. The, uh, you know, the handle is broken off. And he said, Pops, is this your wheelbarrow? And I said, yes. And he said, what's wrong with it? And I said, it's broken. He said, why? And I said, well, because the handle's rotten out of it. He said, why did it rotten out of it? And I said, well, because it's old. And he said, why is it old? And y'all, this keeps going if you keep answering. I mean, he never stops. That's June. And his mom and dad has finally got to the point when he says why, they go, you know why, quit asking that question. You know, but boy, I mean, it is just always why. You know, I mean, you know, recently we had a death, and, and he said, why did they die? And well, they died because they were old. Well, why did they get old? Well, that's what just happens to you when you live. Well, why does that happen to you when you live? And you're just like, no! And so I don't know if Jesus was feeling that way here at this moment, but they just kept asking him. And Jesus is just riding on the ground. And finally he straightens up to them and says this, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now here's the first thing you need to realize. This is actually the law. You see, if you turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 17 to enforce the death penalty... Notice what you have to do. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, has to be at least two, a person is to be put to death. One witness can't be, you can't execute somebody on one witness because obviously you've got the person being accused and the witness and, and they balance each other. One says, I didn't do it. The other said, you did do it. Got to have at least two witnesses. And you say, yeah, but sometimes people get away. Yes, they do. But it prevents people who are innocent from being executed. And so the Bible really has a reason why and why it says that. But notice verse 7 here. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death. In other words, if you want them put before a firing squad, you get the first rifle. If you want them electrocuted, you're the one that pulls the switch. I mean, when you think about that, I don't know about you, but that would cause me to kind of step back a little bit before I want to enforce the death penalty. And so when Jesus looks at them, he says, all right, you want to you stone her? But he adds a caveat to it. And that caveat's the, 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 the big one. Let the one who, of you who is without sin You see, Jesus knows something here in the text. He knew the hearts of all the accusers of this woman. He knew why they set her up. He knew why she was arrested. He knew what they were trying to do. He knew, I mean, Jesus understood exactly what's going on. And so Jesus just kind of looks at them and says, All right, if you are without sin... Go ahead. And the thing he knew most is that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were not there to defend God nor the Torah. They're not there to defend marriage. They're not there to enforce God's law. They're there to entrap him. That's the reason. And so can I ask you a question? Who was committing the greater sin? The text never exonerates the woman. Jesus doesn't say, you're not guilty. He doesn't say that. She had been caught in the act of adultery. But can I ask you, who was committing the greater sin? You see, if we're not careful, what we do is we kind of, we, we, we prioritize certain sins. There are sins that are more serious than other sins. 
I remember in the elder, an elder in the church one time who had been asked a specific question, gave a wrong answer to that question, and then later that day went to the guy who had asked him the question, knocked on his door at his house. The brother came to the door and he said, listen, I wasn't, I wasn't totally honest with you uh, yesterday when I answered your question. I may have fibbed just a little bit. Now, fibs what I do. Lying is what you do, right? You see, you see, when I when I tell an untruth, that's a that's a little. Fib. I may have fibbed a little bit. When you do it, it's a ball faced lie. You see how we prioritize? If you do it, it's a horrible sin. If I do it, it's just a weakness that I have, unfortunately, that I was born with. I mean, we always find ways to downplay what we're doing and yet if you were to take this woman who was caught in adultery and then put the scribes and Pharisees over here what were they guilty of? Here's what they were guilty of. They were guilty in trying to set up the son of God, creator of the universe, redeemer of the world. They're over here and they're trying to find a way to kill him, discredit him they're trying to find a way to dishonor God himself. And boy I just got too excited and knocked my Apologize for that, B.O.G. Are we good? Whoa. I apologize. Uh, don't know what happened to my mic, but it just went off. But uh, I, I really do think that so oftentimes when we think about these two groups of people, yeah, this woman is a horrible sinner, and we don't even realize just how bad their sin was. And so Jesus basically says to them, why do you look at the speck in her eye when you've got this beam sticking out of yours? And one of the things you realize as you get older is that's true of all of us. Many of you know that on Thursdays I go to River Bend Maximum Security Prison. And not every time I leave, but so many times when I leave River Bend, as I'm walking out, as I'm walking, as I'm watching the inmates that I work with heading back to their particular cells, I remember the words of John Bradford, an old Protestant reformer back in the 16th century, who looked at everyone in the world and said, there but for the grace of God goes I. You know, I mean, I mean, when we look at others and think, boy, just look at how bad a person that is, there but for the grace of God goes I. You know, if I had not been born in the family I was born at, if I would not had the teachers that I had, blessed to go to the college I went to, I mean, I could just go on and listen to all the things that helped me to get where I am today. And the response is, there but for the grace of God goes I. And so after saying that, Jesus starts riding in the, in the dirt again. And I love what the text says, that this, those who heard, began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. About 30 years ago, I was speaking at the Blue Ridge family encampment over near Asheville, North Carolina. 
And one of the other speakers at that particular encampment was a man from Texas, and, and I cannot remember his last name. I wished I could. But he went by the phrase Pawpaw. And Pawpaw was a Christian storyteller. And, and I remember one night he was, he was in the lodge and he was telling this story. And he was telling the story a whole lot like the Chosen does, except he was doing it in verbal format 30 years ago. And he told it from the viewpoint of a Pharisee. In fact, the Pharisee who had gone and told the other Pharisees, I know where there's a woman who's committing adultery and we can use her to catch Jesus. And so he tells that whole story from John chapter 8. And as he gets to this particular uh, verse, he, he talks about how that as Jesus is riding in the dirt, the only sound you could hear, the only sound you could hear was the Pharisees and the scribes as they started dropping their rocks. And then they began to walk away. He went to tell how Jesus told the woman, where are your accusers? There are none. Neither do I judge you or condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. And then he ends with this phrase. He says, and as I was walking away, remember, he's telling it from the viewpoint of one of the Pharisees. He said, as I was walking away, it suddenly dawned on me. I sure hope that my fellow Pharisees don't ask me how I know where an adulteress was at. Wow. Wow. Now that was so powerful. I still remember that 30 years later. And of course it started with the older people all the way down to the younger ones. There's something about getting older that makes you realize, you know what? Except for the grace of God, here goes I. And, and Jesus knew that. That's why he said it. And so he turns to the woman. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And for the first time, she can breathe. For the first time, she can look up. For the first time, she can have hope. And, of course, her response is that there are none. And then Jesus says, well, neither do I. And I think that is why it ended up in John's gospel. If Luke did write it, it's because, you know, all through John's gospel, Jesus says over and over again, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but I came in to save it. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not responsibilities that we have and, 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 and consequences to our actions. None of that is the case. But Jesus is here trying to teach us it's easy for us to condemn ourselves when we struggle with sin as we get older. I mean, yes, we may have been judgmental as we're younger, but as I get older, I'm not so much judgmental of others as I'm judgmental of myself. I love communion. But there's a part of communion that rips my heart out almost every Sunday. Is the part of communion that reminds me that the blood of Jesus Christ still has to work in Leslie Chapman's life. Still has to wash away sins. Sins that I wished I'd gotten rid of a long, long, long time ago. But sins that I still struggle with. There's a scene in The Chosen that I love so much. Mary Magdalene in one of the episodes has a relapse. She, she kind of gets caught back in sin and 
She comes back to Jesus, and when she sees Jesus, she says, I don't know what to say. I'm just so ashamed. You redeemed me now. You redeemed me, and, and I just threw it all away. And, and when you're watching The Chosen and, and she says that, I love the character who's playing Jesus' response. He says, well, that's not much of a redemption if it can be lost in a day, is it? And I think a lot of times we just don't realize how much Jesus is fighting for us. Look at what Paul says. Who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? Interesting usage of a word, isn't it? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Why? Because Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised alive, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for me and for you. And that's what gets me through communion. Because I know he's saying, Leslie, just keep trying. Just keep trying. So neither do I condemn you. But then Jesus said something else. But go now and leave your life of sin. Again, if you think, well, this gives us an excuse to sin. As Paul said in Romans 6, so what do we do? Keep on sinning so that God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. And that's what this text tells us. I should hope not. But Jesus gives us one last warning. He says, why I do not condemn you. The words that I have spoken, those words would judge you in the last day. And we need to realize that. I mean, Jesus is constantly calling us to a better life. And so while he's an advocate for giving us, he's also constantly calling us, you can be better. And I hope we'll hear his voice on that. I don't know where you are in your life. I don't know what sins you struggle with. I, 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 someone other other day asked me, hey, hey, Les, have you heard about so-and-so and what they're doing? You know, what do you think about that? And I told them, I said, you know, I'm too focused on trying to fix me to have to really worry about trying to fix a lot of other people. And sometimes we need to realize that. But, but if you are someone who's saying, you know what, I need the grace of God, then why not come today? If you've never obeyed the gospel, come in faith, uh, believe in him, be baptized for the remission of your sins. Uh, the other night I spoke in Memphis, and, and I told the church there, the simplest verse in all the Bible to me about salvation is Mark 16, 16. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. I believe that. And if you've not done that, why not do that? If you have other needs, we'd be glad to help. Come right now as we stand and sing.